this is the Woodland Hills Family Church Podcast. Our desire is to inspire you and your family to become fully devoted followers of Christ. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. As Ted mentioned, I want to talk about desperation. Uh, I've titled this message, The Last Resort. I thought that had a nice summer theme to it. Uh, you've been to a few resorts in your life, maybe. Uh, I want to talk about the last resort. Um, to get into it, though, let me put this uh, little phrase up on the screen. Desperate times call for... You know this phrase? Desperate times call for desperate measures, yeah? Uh, you know what, what this phrase means, and you don't need me to explain it to you, but just the, the, the way this phrase works is there are times in life where the circumstances are adverse, where you, you've bumped into a situation that is difficult or challenging or out of the ordinary. And in the middle of that desperate time, there are things that you end up doing that wouldn't normally be acceptable behavior, wouldn't be socially acceptable, or maybe wouldn't even be, in some cases, the law doesn't allow it, but you go, you know what, in th- I, because of the situation, I, desperate times call for desperate Measures. Let me just tell you my own example out of my own life. Uh, ten years ago, my wife and I were um, we were pregnant with our second child. I say we were pregnant; she was pregnant with our second wife. I participated, but in the process. But that's a different message for a different day. Uh, we had our first child. Lucy was uh, two at the time, and the way we the way our pregnancies work just happened this way that um, we. Uh, Jenny just wouldn't go into labor very easily, and so they would do an induction. They would, they would induce the baby. And so our first child was an induction. The next three kids were actually inductions. And so um, in my mind, uh, if you would have caught me on this particular day in 2011, I would have said, oh, we're having a baby tomorrow because we had an induction schedule for the next day. So she's nine nine months pregnant. And I'm sitting at breakfast with a, a guy who's actually a professor of mine from Dallas Theological Seminary. And uh, he was in town for something. And I was in one of those seasons, you go through these seasons where you try to be, you know, your phone at the table is always kind of a distraction, you know? So I was in one of those seasons where I was trying to be real present. So I had my ringer turned off. I had the phone turned on it face down. And I was just trying to be in the moment with this guy. And I was telling him, you know, he's asking about the family. I'm like, oh, Jenny's pregnant. We're having a baby tomorrow. We're very excited, you know. You can see where this is going. So I um, get to my car. And I, as I'm walking out there, I look at my phone. I had 17 missed phone calls from my wife. And I had uh, about five text messages that, um, I don't know what's the right way to say this. I guess they uh, escalated in tone. <laughs> is probably what's most appropriate. Um, the first one said, uh, hey, babe, um, hope breakfast is going well. Don't want to alert you, but I think my water just broke. Next text message. Seems like we should go ahead and head to the hospital. A few minutes later. Are you getting these messages? A few minutes later. Do you enjoy living And then the final one, I can't even tell you what it said. It was laced with profanity. It would not be, it wouldn't be appropriate for a two-on-two men's basketball tournament, a father-son. It would not be, I'm just kidding. Uh, My wife doesn't talk like that unless she's nine months pregnant. Um, 
I'm kidding. She doesn't really talk like that. But anyway, I was obviously mortified. And of course, my first concern was for the child and for my wife. And I don't want to have this child in the car. But my main concern was really for my own life. Um, am I going to make it to see another day? So I rushed home. She's standing outside. with I'll never forget this image. Her holding the bag, tears streaming down her face. You know, you don't care. You're not really in this with me. Are you not paying attention? Do you not know it? And I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. Like, you know, open up the door, help her in the car. And from that moment on, I broke more laws than I have broken in my entire life getting to the hospital. And I see you nodding along because you're like, as you should have. I mean, there was the speed limit at that point that, you know, I, I was completely ignoring it. The traffic lights were just a suggestion. Stop signs were just like, if you get a chance. And it's really not that big of a deal. If you're rushing your wife to the hospital, you just do what you need to do. And I, I remember in that moment just being like, I, it doesn't matter what is happening right now. I have got to get her to the hospital so that I can live another day. At desperate times call for desperate measures, right? You have these seasons of life where that desperation leads you to do things that you wouldn't normally, it leads you to feel things you wouldn't normally feel, to do things you wouldn't normally do. And I do, I want to talk today about desperation because there's, there's a couple sides to desperate. There is this negative side of desperation, you know, where this, this kind of this agony that we feel, this nag that we feel that sometimes causes us to make terrible decisions. But there is this healthy side of desperation, particularly when it comes to our relationship with God, not, not always with our relationship with others. Sometimes desperation's not the best in relationships, but when it comes to our relationship with God, it's interesting as we see people interact with Jesus throughout his lifetime, we see the way their desperation intersects with what, with what he ends up doing, his activity, and they end up knowing him in ways that they wouldn't normally know him. Today, I want to talk about a story that's out of Mark 5. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there. If you've got a device, you can open it up. If you have just an incredible memory, then just go ahead and get to Mark 5. Um, it's an interesting chapter in Mark's account of Jesus' life that tells of three different stories, three different interactions that people have with Jesus. And in every one of them, we see the way these two men and one female, and in, in, in all of their cases, though, are driven to God by desperation. And so I just want to ask us all, just as, a, as an exercise of self-introspection, just to think about our own life, can, can I ask you this? When, when is the last time you felt desperate with God? God, if you don't come through, I don't know how I'm going to make it. God, I need you to move. Maybe it's a marriage that you're begging him for. Maybe it's uh, uh, hoping to get pregnant. Maybe it's uh, the restoration of a relationship. Maybe if it's a child that's run away and making bad decisions. Maybe it's a financial situation. Maybe it's a job situation to get into the school you want to get into. What, whatever it may be. When is the last time you approach God with this sense of, God, I am desperate. I'm desperate. I don't know what else to do. And let me just change one little word here. When's the last time you felt desperate for God? When's the last time you just felt that sense of, God, I need you. I need to know you. I need to be with you. I need to know you're with me. I need your wisdom. I need your, I need your involvement on my situation. Mark, Mark 3 is really just a, a three-act play showcasing the types of people that Jesus rescues 
Because that's what he does. When we bring our desperation to him, we find in him a God who says, hey, I can handle it. I actually am glad that you feel the way you feel. And I want to be a part of the process with you. The, the, way, the, the way the chapter begins, it begins with this, this guy who was possessed by demons. Uh, we don't talk about that a lot in our society today, but this is a very common way they thought about. Sometimes it was just the way they thought about mental health, the way they thought about things that they couldn't explain. But there was this presence of angels and demons, this other life. I think C.S. Lewis, when he talks about angels and demons, I really like the way he puts it. He says, hey, you don't want to obsess over it and feel like every time you turn the corner, there's an angel or a demon there. But at the same time, you don't want to deny the reality that there is another world that exists in this world. Some of you are like, oh yeah, no, I've seen people possessed by demons in my home, in my house. There's a man who was possessed by demons. He didn't know what else to do. He's screaming out. He's just acting completely out of his mind was the term that, that, that Mark uses to explain him. And he's living out in the caves and there were chains and that couldn't even hold him down. And they were done with that. And Jesus bumps into this man. And the man says, hey, help me. And God, through Jesus, casts out these demons in, in him into this herd of pigs. And the pigs run off. The cliff and a, a, a couple hundred of them die. Tragic day for bacon, right? For the entire industry. <laughs> and everyone there, the owners of the pigs particularly, are like, hey, Jesus, this is not cool. You need to get out of here. And this huge crowd that was surrounding him, Jesus gets to a particular lake. The, the man is now dressed in clothes and in his right mind says, Jesus, I want to go with you. Jesus says, no, 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 where I'm going, you cannot come, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to your hometown. I want you to tell everyone about what I have done. Be a testimony, be a witness to the power of God. And Jesus gets in a boat and crosses over the lake where another crowd is waiting for him. This other crowd on the other side of the lake heard that he was coming and now they're gathering. And again, he's just surrounded by people. And that's where we're going to pick this up in Mark chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. This is common for Jesus' ministry. We see this over and over again in Mark. Mark talks about the crowd of people that was always around Jesus. And in this particular crowd, there was a man who works his way through the crowd and approaches Jesus. This is the second interaction that Jesus has in Mark chapter 5. This man's name was Jairus. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at Jesus' feet. Now, I want to talk about, I want to talk about what, what it meant to be a synagogue leader in that day. This was different than a rabbi. A rabbi would have been like the, the pastor, the priest, the bishop, but in this case, this was the synagogue leader. So he's the, the, he was kind of the operations manager. He ran the operations of the synagogue. This would have been a man who was probably uh, had a significant acumen in business, but also was a wealthy person, had a, a large network of people, probably pretty buttoned up, pretty official, pretty sophisticated, was a man of great stature, a man of great wealth. This guy had it all together. This man would have been the one who would have been able to call anybody he needed to call to get help. But with the situation that he was facing, he had nowhere else to go. He had nowhere else to turn. And he's in the middle of his crisis. And we find him begging Jesus to intercede on his behalf. Here's what his crisis was. He pleaded earnestly with Jesus, Sir, my, my little daughter is dying Please come, put your hands on her so that she will be healed 
and live. Some of you have kids, and so you can just, you can totally imagine. Some of you have had kids that have had all, faced all kinds of illness. Maybe you've had grandkids. Maybe you've got niece or nephew. But everyone's had a kid that you, that you just loved. My wife and I, uh, we have a 12-year-old daughter. She's our firstborn. Uh, I don't, we've got five kids, and the other four, I don't know how life is going to turn out for them. But the first one, I feel like she's going to crush. I have no doubt. The jury on the rest of them, still out. <laughs> but in her case, I just, she's just amazing. And I just think so highly of her. And to think about your 12-year-old daughter, this little precious girl that you watched come into this world and watch grow up to be this strong but gentle, smart and kind and funny and playful, innocent little 12-year-old girl. I just can't, I can't fathom what Jairus had to be feeling. But you could imagine that if you've done everything you knew to do, of course you would have a moment where you would come down and get on your knees in front of Jesus and go, hey, I have tried medical options. We've called every doctor we know to call. We've tried oils and ointments and spirits, and we've tried everything else. But we heard that you have the ability to heal. Would you please come and heal my daughter? Can't you just feel his desperation? Can't you feel the intensity of his emotion? And then I love this little line that Mark tells us. He just says, real simply, he says, and so, so Jesus went with him. How cool is that? That Jesus is like, got it, man. Yeah, let's do it. Come on, let's go. And we don't know how far away the house was. Maybe it was around the corner. Maybe it was across the town. Maybe it was in the next town over. But Jesus said, let's go. And so they set off Jairus and Jesus and this huge multitude of people walking to Jairus's home. I'm sure in that moment he was filled with hope. Oh my goodness. He said, yes. I didn't think he would say yes, but he said, yes, maybe there's hope for my daughter. And so he's probably moving at a rather quick pace. I'm sure he's probably moving. Jesus is like, can, 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 we, can, we, can we walk a little bit faster? How quick can you move in those Birkenstocks? You know, can you, can you, can you move it on down the road a little bit? When someone in, in the middle of this crowd that's following, Jesus has his next interaction with someone in Mark 5. Do you remember what happens next? There's a lady. We don't know this lady's name, but this lady had a problem. She was hemorrhaging. She had been bleeding for 12 years, which is such an interesting little Note that we find in Mark 5 that 12 years ago, Jairus and his wife had gotten pregnant and had a baby. You know, that joy of new life. And also 12 years earlier, this lady had bumped into this medical issue that not only made her broken, but it also made her unclean. It also made her... uh, poor because she had spent all of her money trying to get it fixed and doctors had not fixed it. No, instead, Mark tells us that the doctors had made it worse. We don't know if they bamboozled her and took her money or if it's just, it's the first century. They don't understand that the the medical treatment at this point was so primitive. But either way, this lady, she comes to Jesus desperately. 
She probably was hidden. She probably had a, a hood over her head, maybe had something over her face, didn't want to be seen because she was not allowed, because of the Levitical law, she was not allowed to be around other people because she had been deemed unclean. And so she didn't even want to interact with Jesus. She didn't want to bump into him, but she knew this might be my only hope. And so she moves her way through the crowd. And remember, she grabs Jesus, his tassel, the tassel of his outer garment. And do you remember what Jesus did? Do you remember what he said in this moment? He said, who touched me? Who, who, who touched me? I mean, if you were there, in the, if you're one of his disciples, you know, you're probably just like, is this, guy, is this the beginning of him going crazy? What is he talking about? Who touched you? Jesus, look around. It's like being on a, it's like being on a, 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 a train headed somewhere that's like, people are crammed in there. Like a bunch of people are touching you, man. There's people everywhere. What do you mean who touched you? And he's like, no, 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 this was different. Someone touched me. Someone touched me and power left me. I felt power go out from me. And instantly this woman is healed. And Jesus finds her. He interacts with her. He, he, he maybe calls her by name. He maybe hears her story. He maybe has a conversation with her. But he eventually says, ma'am, your faith has made you whole. And not only in that moment did Jesus heal this woman, but he gave this woman what she couldn't get anywhere else. He made this woman clean. He ascribed identity onto this woman. Ma'am, here is who you are. Mark doesn't even tell us her name. But Jesus says, you are now a child of the Most High. And he healed her and made her clean. And meanwhile, Jairus, he's just sitting over here going like, um, this is going to make for a great story someday. So I don't want to interrupt. But at the same time, can we please hurry this up? You, can you imagine how impatient he, I mean, think about how impatient we get, you know? And yet he's standing there going like, hey, Jesus, like what? Clock's ticking, man. I don't know how much time we have. He's probably feeling nervous. He starts, you know, as Jesus stops, he's like, oh my goodness, you got to be kidding me. Longer it goes on, he's over there going like, should I interrupt? Should I go say, hey, ma'am, uh, congrats and way to go. But we have got to go because I, he's, I got a daughter and I don't I have time to explain it all to you, but we're going somewhere. And in the middle of all that, look at what happens next. While Jesus was still speaking, probably to this female, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, and they brought a message to him. They said, Jairus, your daughter is dead. I don't know how to tell you this. I'm so sorry. But she just passed away. I, I didn't want to have to come and give you this message. Have you ever had to do that? Maybe some of you work in law enforcement, or maybe you're a paramedic, or maybe you have been in some kind of situation like this where you had to go tell someone. Oh, I don't know how to tell you this. A couple of years ago for me, we had a, we we're coming back from camp and a kid that I knew really well, his mom had died in a car accident and I'll never forget him getting off the bus and having to tell him, hey, your mom's not coming to pick you up. But she died last night. But then they ask him this really interesting question. They say, hey, Jairus, I'm so sorry. I hate it. I know this is going to be heartbreaking. But your daughter's dead. And then they said, but, but why would you bother the teacher anymore, Jairus? Why not just let him go? Let him be on his way. 
You don't need, you don't need him anymore, man. I'm telling you, we, we, we were there. It was very clear. She stopped breathing. She's dead. Have you ever felt like you were bothering God? I mean, it's kind of a weird thing to think about, but have you ever had one of those moments where you felt like, God, I have asked you so many times, I'm sure this is annoying. But we, we just can't get pregnant. Or, I, God, I don't know why this is not working out. Or, God, I can't find the right job. Or, God, I don't know how this financial situation is going to work out. God, this lawsuit, I, I feel powerless. And, God, I feel like I'm bothering you. Here's the beauty of Jesus is that he did not seem bothered by Jairus. Look at what he says to Jairus. Jesus overhears this and he says, you know what, Jairus, don't be afraid. Fear's gonna wanna tell you that it's over, that the sun is set, that the day is done, but I'm telling you, have faith. Just believe in me. That same belief that drove you to your knees that drove you here to me, you just continue to believe. And then Mark gives us this little interesting little note. He didn't let anyone follow him at this point except Peter, James, and John, the brother of Jesus. And then they get to the home of the synagogue leader and there's a big commotion going on. As they get to Jairus' home, Jesus saw the commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. One of the things I learned about this little, this the situation that was happening was people would actually, uh, it would, it would almost like flowers on a graveside. People would pay people to come and wail and mourn and make a huge deal out of the tragedy that had just happened. And so the fact that he had a lot of people there, that there was a big commotion spoke to his wealth, that he had a lot of people there that were being paid, were employed to wail and mourn and make a commotion And so this was a huge deal. You would have been able to hear it from a couple blocks away. Jesus, of course, saw the commotion and asked this question. Hey, excuse me. He went in and said, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead. The child is just asleep. Which is something that we don't have enough time to get deep into, but it seems like this is an exchange that Jesus made often, an interchange that he would make often, where he would use the term sleep to refer to death and would use the term death to refer to sleep as well. That in his world, in his mind, this eternal view that death is more like sleep, that in the same way you go to sleep, that in the next life, that that there will be this resurrection, this waking up, this new life that will happen on the other side of death. And so this wasn't uncommon for Jesus to use language like this. It speaks to the hope of the resurrection, that this life is not what all, that all there is to life, that there is a life after this life. Some of you have mourned the loss of someone, and it's just that. It's the loss of them. It's the sadness of missing them. But the hope that in the next life, that those who have put their faith in Jesus will be able to live forever, that it's like they're just asleep. And Jesus says, this little girl is not dead. She's just asleep. And everybody was like, this dude is full on crazy. They started mocking him. They started laughing at him. They actually laughed at the son of God. They laughed at God incarnate, God in flesh, telling him, no, no, see, you, you don't actually understand the way death works, Jesus. 
she's dead, man. That's it. We know sleep and we know death, and that was death. Sorry. But Jesus says, I, I don't have time for that right now. And he puts them out. In fact, after he put all of these haters out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and he went in where the child was. And just imagine the scene. You can just picture it. This sweet little girl, lifeless, motionless, breathless, laying in this bed, laying on a pallet. Parents are sobbing. I'm sure James and John and Peter are probably like, why are we here? Why are, should we be here? This feels a little personal. Like they're probably hanging in the back. And Jesus gently but confidently walks right in to this little girl and grabs her hand. He took her by the hand and says to her, Talitha kum. Talitha kum. This little Aramaic phrase that means little girl. Talitha, little girl. Not something that you would say to a friend, but something that a grandfather would say to his granddaughter, something that a father would say to his daughter. Talitha speaks of tenderness and compassion. My precious little girl, kum, the imperative, get up. I say to you, stand up, get to your feet. It's a command, it's not a suggestion. And as I was listening to this over and over again, I, I've been listening to uh, the Bible and the Bible app a lot lately. Is been my preferred way of reading God's word. That British man that reads the NIV version on the Bible app, some of you know what I'm talking about. That guy, has got, he's going to have a special mansion in heaven. Uh, <laughs> what a dear brother that gentleman is. And the way he says this phrase, it's so powerful. You can just feel the moment. And as I'm listening to him a couple of weeks ago, I just started thinking about all the times that this father would have used that phrase. I mean, just think about this. This dad was there when this little girl was learning how to walk. Have you seen a little kid learn how to walk lately? I mean, there is not a whole lot cuter in life than like this little one-year-old like getting up on their feet and finding their balance, you know? And then they just start to take steps, you know? And then they'll take one or two or three and then they'll fall. And I'm sure in that moment, that father looked at that little girl and said, Talitha, kum, my little girl, stand up, get up. Maybe when she was five or six, she's playing out on the playground and maybe she had run around the corner or something and bumped into someone and fallen down on the ground and he probably looked at her and said, Talitha, little girl, my precious girl, kum, get up. You can do this. Come on, stand up. Or she's 12, so she's becoming a, a teenager. And as they do, she's probably starting to sleep later. And so maybe this was the phrase he used when he woke her up in the morning. You're going to be late. School's about to start. Talitha, kum. Little girl, my precious girl, stand up. I'm sure chills went all over his body when Jesus used that phrase. And you can just imagine what happened. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. With all the energy of a 12-year-old bouncing off the walls. So tender, so compassionate, but so powerful. And everyone 
was completely astonished. At this, they were all mind blown. You've got to be kidding me. Did you hear? Did you see? Have you heard what happened to Jairus's daughter? And although Jesus told them, don't tell anybody about this. The time had not come yet. And so he gave them strict orders not to let anyone know about this. The word got out. People started hearing about it. And then Jesus gives them instructions. Hey, let's get this little girl something to eat, right? Like, why is no one on their way to Chick-fil-A right now to get some nuggets? Come on. Like, this girl's been asleep. Let's get her some food. What, what, what's the main point of this interaction? What's, what's the big idea? I mean, you don't, you, don't, you don't have to have seminary degrees, but what's the big idea? The big idea is real simply, Jesus is God. Jesus is all-powerful. Jesus can heal. Jesus can fix. Jesus can restore. Jesus can save. He has all of the power on the planet, in the world, in the universe, under his command. That he is all-powerful over life and he's all-powerful over death. That's the whole point. The whole point is Jesus is not the man. No, the point is that Jesus is God. And so when he says to you and to me, follow me, we should just say, you got it. Absolutely. Where do I start? Yes, sir. A hundred percent. I'm all in. But there's so much we learn though about Jairus's interaction. I mean, Jairus didn't even know it, but he's interacting with God. And maybe there's something to be learned. I hope there's something to be learned for you and for me about how we should approach God. Because we're going to all have our moments of desperation. So let me just ask this question. What, what does this interaction with Jesus teach us about how we can approach God? I want to give you just a couple of applications. For that moment where you decide, you know what, I, I don't know where else to turn. I, I don't have anywhere else to go. I'm out of options. I've tried everything else. I mean, this is part of the problem with America. This is part of the problem with our society is that we've got a lot of options. We've got a lot of places to go. We've got a great medical care. We've got great mental health care. We've got great counseling care. We've got great care of each other. We've got great amount, great amount of wealth to be able to fix our situation and fix our problems. Sometimes if we're like, oh, well, I don't really like that church or I don't like that pastor or I don't like that school or I don't like that restaurant, we can just go to another one. We just find another one because we've got loads of options. But what do you do in the moment where you're out of options? I don't have any more options. I've tried everything I know to try. If I knew to do anything else, I would do it. What do we learn about that moment in life when we decide, all right, I'm going to come to God and bring him my situation. Here, here's the first one is that God is not turned off by your desperation. Now listen, other people will be desperation horizontally can get annoying. It can get trying. It can get taxing, but God loves our desperation. He loves it when we come to him as desperate children. God, I am out of options. I've tried everything else. I don't have anywhere to go. You are my only hope. Please come and intercede on my behalf. He's not turned off by it. 
No, he loves it. Here's the second simple application. God isn't put off by being your last resort. You ever invited somebody to something, you know, and they're like, hey, just curious, how many other people did you invite before you got to me, you know? And, and you kind of get like a little bit annoyed because then you hear like, oh, they actually called like three or four other people, you know? Somebody tried the other business that does your line of work and they're like, hey, we tried it and it didn't work, you know? Sometimes we get irritated by that or annoyed by or put off by that, you know? God doesn't. This is what's so amazing about the grace of our loving father is he's not looking at you shaking his head going like, oh, really? Now you turn to me, huh? You tried everything else and now you couldn't figure it out. So you come to me now. Okay, well, I'm going to put you in time out before I help you out. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't make us feel guilty. He doesn't make us feel shamed. If you've tried every other option to try, you can still come to him. God isn't put off by being your last resort. In fact, you're going to find that Jesus is a safe refuge even when he's your last resort. He's standing there with arms open wide saying, just come to me. I, don't, it, I, I hate the fact that you've gone everywhere else. But I'm just glad that you decided to come to me. Here's the, the last thing that I take away from this is that desperation can deepen. It deepens our relationship with God. It'll deepen your relationship with God. In fact, one of my biggest fears as I was thinking about this message was sometimes we read a message like this and we think, oh, is that a promise that God's going to do that for me? I've got a sick child or I've got a medical condition that I can't fix or I'm trying to get into this school or I'm trying to get this job or I'm trying to get the marriage back on track or we're trying to get pregnant or I'm trying to get married. Is this the answer that God, if I come to him with enough desperation, he'll intercede on my behalf and fix my situation? Maybe, or maybe not. You're smart people. You know how this works. And plus, you've probably had situations where you prayed and you prayed and you prayed and you were desperate and God didn't come through and maybe another pastor told you, well, you didn't have enough faith. Listen, the point of us bringing our desperation is not to get God to move. Sometimes he moves and sometimes we can't see how he moves. But the point is that Jairus, that Jairus got to walk with Jesus. That Jairus got to go on this walk with the savior of the world. This lady, yes, she got healed and she got cleansed, but the point is that she got to stand face to face with her creator. This man possessed by demons yeah, he was eventually standing there in his right mind and fully dressed, but he got to have an interaction with the king. You know what eventually happened to Jairus' daughter? Anybody know? What eventually happened? None of the gospel accounts tell us, but do you know what happened to her? She died. How did you know that? That's amazing. She died. Some of you are like, no, honestly, how did you know that? Well, because the ratio is one to one, right? 
Like it's going to happen to all of us. She eventually died. Now, maybe she got to be a teenager. Maybe she got to get married. Maybe she got to have kids and Jairus became a grandfather and maybe she got to live into old age. I mean, who knows? But she eventually died. Essentially, what we want isn't what we actually really need in the long run, in the long term. What we need is to know our creator, to know our savior. And, know, and, and, and coming to Jesus with that kind of desperation, it will deepen your relationship with him. You'll know him in ways that you would have never known him before. God doesn't just want to enhance your circumstance. God, he wants to deepen his relationship with you. He wants to deepen your relationship with him. So Woodland Hills, I, just this final simple little plea is let, let's, let's be desperate for Jesus. I know you got other options and you should try them. Buy the life insurance, buy the health insurance, make the plan, apply to the school, apply to the backup school, get, get, get a job, get, get a second job if you need to do that, get, get a financial planner. I mean, do all the things that are healthy and wise, but don't let all those fool you into thinking that you can fix it. That ultimately where God wants us to be is on our knees begging him, please come through. I'm going to take the medicine. I'm going to get a counselor. I'm going to do all the things that would be wise to do. But in the end, I am counting on you. And if you don't come through, I'm sunk. That's the kind of desperation that'll deepen your relationship with him. Father, I pray, um, God, for the person today that, that has a situation that they can't fix and they know it. And they go, oh, you don't have to talk me into being desperate. I'm already there. Father, I pray that they would lean into you in a way that they never have before. Father, for the person that just kind of feels like Jairus maybe felt before his daughter got sick, I, I, I got it. I mean, I'm, I'm good. I got it figured out. Father, I pray that you would give them enough grace and mercy to let them experience a desperation for you before their circumstances call for it. God, every one of us is going to get to a place in life where we are on our knees without options, nowhere else to turn. God, I pray that you would allow us to choose to be there whether our circumstances call for it or not. And thank you for being a loving father. And we pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.